Hello, you're welcome to If I Were the Minister for Education from Unshot.net. Unsanitized. Blended learning and back to school. Part 2. Hello, you're very welcome to this series of special episodes on going back to school in the times of this COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, this is Simon Lewis from Onshaw.net. Um, this is part two of that uh, of this series. Um, in the first uh, part, I spoke about uh, I suppose, the consequences of reaping what you sow um, and why I believe uh, we're actually going to be in a situation where blended learning will be back on the agenda. Now, I'm using the word blended learning in its correct sense rather than the sense of uh, what it had been used in the media and by various bodies. What I see happening is we'll all go back to school with the intention of having normal school. Uh, then we'll be, uh, then I think the um, there's going to be a, a call to close schools down again and we'll have to reopen them again in a blended way where some of the time children will be going to school and other times they'll have to stay at home and that's where blended learning will take place. So my theory and uh, as I've said in my previous episode I hope I'm wrong is uh, that a a teacher would be well advised to prepare their children for a blended learning situation. Now, in part two of this episode, this one here, I'm uh, not going to focus on the home part of it. I'm going to focus on how can a teacher, I suppose, what would a teacher expect coming back to school in COVID-19 times? Let's uh, park blended learning for the moment and uh, maybe just look at the uh, getting back to school bit and what that's going to look like um, over the next uh, number of weeks or months or hopefully forever, um, or at least until they find a vaccine. Because if all goes to plan, we won't have blended learning. But what's definite is that our classrooms are going to look different. So in this part, that's what I'm going to be looking at. What I want to do uh, today is look at classrooms um, in COVID times. Because one of the things that you... um, probably are already familiar with is that the government have uh, put out some suggested classroom layouts uh, that might be safer or have a less risk than um, the classrooms that you may have left back in March. And any teacher worth their salt in the last uh, 20 years has favoured uh, a collaborative classroom where classrooms were uh, set out in um, in, in groups and where there was a lot of chance for chats and conversations. But in a, in these times, that sort of classroom may not be safe. And what I need to do is I want to have a look at what that will, what a classroom might look like and how it's very likely going to look very different. So classroom layouts may look different. They're not necessarily so. But many of the samples given in the government guidelines um, showed rows of desks rather than groups. Um, suggesting that group work is going to be fairly limited. Um, and, in, you know, given that the virus seems to like groups of people um, in terms of spreading, and given that the evidence is growing to the fact that children are spreading and catching the virus, group work does seem to be something that we're going to have to start considering knocking on the head, uh, to put it bluntly. Now, it certainly goes against mine and I presume most teachers intuition not to have children working in closed groups. I mean this is this is how most modern primary school classrooms look these days and even the department guidelines find it difficult to accept the fact that group work is going to be difficult and um, despite putting the children out in rows uh, in the classroom they do state that children uh, um, 
with, with they basically ask children to stay as far apart as possible but then in the same breath look for collaborative learning opportunities now collaboration when you're not in groups is very difficult can you imagine a classroom for example where the children are taking part in a role play a for example but they're all standing two meters apart from each other now if they fit in the room and you have basically 15 sets of voices trying to hear each other with two meters apart from each group. I think this is an area where things are going to be very, very difficult. Um, and I really think it's really worth, you know, it's it's easy for the government to say things or it's easy for teachers to say things, easy for me to say things, but let's examine what they are, like the practicalities of it. I did my teacher training over in the UK, so I'm, I'm, I'm not actually sure about the psychology of, uh, if the psychology of the classroom is actually covered over here in, in Ireland. I know psychology of education is covered in Ireland, but the psycho- actual psychology of the classroom itself. Um, but it was definitely, it was the first chapter we were told to read when we start, when I started in training college um, over in the UK. And I remember being absolutely fascinated about it, by it. And, and maybe that was because I was, uh, I was just starting teacher training, so everything was exciting. But I remember becoming completely obsessed with the physical psychology of a classroom and the various different layouts of chairs and tables and even the rooms with no furniture and then the impact that would have on teaching and learning. I I just loved the idea of the psychology of laying out furniture or laying out uh, things for places for children to learn and how that actually affected their learning depending on how you put the the chairs and tables. And I'm not sure if it's something that, uh, you know, was covered, as I said, in in Irish Teacher Training College, but it was amazing the impact I saw uh, of it when I was actually training over there and we had to experiment with them. In fact, the physical psychology in general of any classroom does have a massive impact on the type of learning that's going to happen. And you probably know all of this already, but individual seating where tables sit in rows with gaps between tables aren't good for collaborative work and groups of tables on the other side of it are not very good for quiet individual work and you know and then there's other little different shapes and things like that like u shapes for example where you might find in a an eal uh, schools that seems to be the popular one there are almost good as a circle uh, because you get discussions and oral language but you also have the benefit of in a u shape of everyone being able to see a focal point such as a teacher or a whiteboard or whatever so i find this stuff very 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 interesting and fascinating now i already hear you saying uh, by the way, whoa, 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 Simon, didn't you just say sitting in rows is not good for collaborative work? And didn't the guidelines advocate sitting in rows, but also try to advocate for collaborative work? And, and you'd be absolutely right. I did say that. I said it a couple of times, actually. Uh, so I'm going to make the brave assumption that whoever wrote these guidelines now either didn't train to become a teacher or maybe they missed the lectures in teacher training college after maybe a, a few too many down the Garda Club in Haddington Road. Or maybe this isn't covered at all in colleges over here. Or maybe it was because somebody found a box full of random teacher words and decided to turn them into a policy document. Look, I don't know. But if you're going to insist on collaborative learning, the physical psychology of a classroom is going to make that really difficult. So what sorts of physical layouts are you going to have to try? Well, let's just say straight from the bat, okay? Even though our friend John Boyle talks big and says that he can't guarantee that supersized classes will all go back to school, he he pretty much left it to principals to actually make that decision. Now, I can imagine, (laughs) 
I can imagine a principal now in one of her classrooms looking at the chairs and tables, scratching their head and holding a measuring tape and, and they'd be showing a parent the physical impossibility of fitting all 32 children in the 23 square metre room that she has and basically saying to the parents, well... We, we, we can't fit all of um, all of the children in the classroom. So we've had to make some decisions around who can come in uh, and who can't. Uh, and given that we've received no criteria for this, we, we our board has kind of made up our own criteria. So our chairperson, the, the parish priest there, has decided to allow children uh, into school on the basis of mass attendance before lockdown. Now, to be honest, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> I'm only joking. But the actual reality is that I can absolutely, I can almost absolutely guarantee, I won't absolutely guarantee, but I can, I, 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 I can almost absolutely guarantee you there will not be a single child in this country turned away from their, from their school due to limitations of space. As I said, it's really easy for people to talk. It's very easy for the likes of John Boyle and all the gang up there to make these idle threats and make big talk. But if there's no follow through, and actually compelling their members to refuse to work in conditions where there isn't adequate space, then it's meaningless and it shouldn't even be said. I wish he wouldn't bother or any of them would bother. Not only is it embarrassing, I think it's embarrassing, it's quite serious. And I must say, while it's serious, I find it amusing when I'm reading the journalists and the social media commentators giving out about how the unions are preventing the schools from opening. I actually, I, I, they actually did their job. They might actually have, these journalists might have something to give out about. So basically, even if your classroom is tiny, you're going to have to squeeze all of the children in and you're going to have to hope for the best. As I said, you could basically summarise the entire roadmap for reopening schools in a single emoji. And that's the fingers crossed emoji, in my opinion. Anyway, another one of these things that made me despair with the government guidelines was their liberal use of uh, of single occupant desks. I don't know if any of you noticed the, uh, the the various illustrations. Most of the pictures were of single desks, you know, where one child sits at them. Not not like what what every primary school has, which is two people to a desk. Now I don't know many primary schools uh, at all with single desks. I, I don't think I've come across too many of them. But sure, can't you use your minor works grant to buy loads of those single desks? Can't you? Well, as I'm sure you've already guessed, not only is it near impossible to find single desks in primary school friendly sizes, your doubled minor works grant is not going to cover the cost of them anyhow. So, I mean, this single desk thing is just, I suppose it's, I don't know, it's, it's, it's not funny at all, but, you know, uh, and maybe it isn't the most serious thing to be uh, getting vexed about, but ultimately you know, where we, we are in a situation where children aren't going to be sitting at single desks. Um, and anyway, even so, with your, um, you know, with your so uh, kind of, I don't know how you just going so last season, double occupancy desks, because, you know, they're out of fashion now. There are tons of layouts of classrooms that you can choose to do. And your space and your imagination is the only image. I mean, ultimately, don't worry about the government guidelines. I mean, they're just there because it ticks a box. Your imagination is probably your only limit. Uh, the government guidelines suggest that your pods, which is the new fancy name for groups, are no more than six children. So that might put a stop to some of the layouts that are there. Um, I wrote an article a few weeks ago. Um, God, good while ago now on mash.ie which is a another website that i would uh, uh, that i'm a co-director um, of uh with some suggested uh, layouts for for uh, classrooms or or what are they called now bubbles uh which which most of which follow the guidelines now one might i know one might think that listening to somebody describe where chairs and tables go in a rectangular space might be one of the most exciting things in the world to do but believe me it really isn't 
it's not that exciting for me to tell you uh, to tell you where to put chairs and tables. There are limits even to this podcast. Uh, so one piece of advice I'd give to you though is basically to experiment. Go into your school, go into your classroom and move the chairs and tables around in different ways to see what, what, what will that look like? Look at things like traffic flows. And I know I'm starting to sound very obsessed. And I, I told you I was obsessed with uh, with physical psychology. But how are people going to... You're trying to avoid contact as much as possible. So check how a child will get into their seat. Like, put yourself in the place of a child. How, how, how will how will he get from the door into a seat? How many people will he have to pass by? Will he have to squeeze through any, any spaces? And if so, you might want to revise the layout. So the idea is that there's a lot of space for uh, getting in and out, but not necessarily for movement within the classroom so people need to stay in their seats but they do need to get in and get out um, as easily as possible so there's just a, a, like a couple of tips really you can have a look at uh, I mean there's myriad I think there's actually a website dedicated to classroom layouts and if I'm not mistaken I think it's classroomlayouts.com but I, I could be wrong google it and uh, and you'll find some really interesting uh, ways and they uh, you know they, they may even have some ones that some some ideas that might be useful for uh, these pandemic times anyway once again uh, once uh, you've got your chairs and tables laid out, there's other things you might have done PPT, pre-pandemic times. Um, for example, we're not really going to be able to bring the whole class to the front of the classroom on, the, on a mat. Do you know what I mean? I think some uh, like particularly very young classes where they bring all the classes to the front in front of the whiteboard and there's a nice little chat. We're not going to be able to do that. Um, and uh, it's very unlikely there's going to be a safe situation to do proper circle time, for example, again, with physical distancing. Um, moving from group to group is going to be a no-no if we're limiting movement between the pods. And, uh, you know, what about moving around in general? I mean, all of this is now going to be fairly impossible and has to be considered. As I said, it's very easy for the, the big guys there to, t- to say a sentence. But if you actually think about it a lot, there's a huge amount of logistics um, involved in setting out your own classroom. I mean, take Ashter, for example. Well, I know from second class down, there's just, there's, there seems to be a wavering of the, sur- you know, a, uh, of the rules or like, you can even say waving the surrendering flag, uh, surrender the white flag in terms of keeping children apart. But there is still a mild expectation that it will be done, that you will try and physically distance children in the younger classes. And don't forget about the teacher. Like he or she's going to have to be two metres apart from the other children, or is it one metre? I think it, it was two metres of originally and they've maybe they've moved it down to one and the recommendation is not to protect uh, oneself with a face covering as well at the moment and again that might change so it's going to be goodbye to standing or sitting close to pupils and this is going to also have an effect on learning opportunities i mean for example you know back uh, back in the day if a child was stuck and they put up their hand a teacher would go up to that desk they'd kneel right beside the child probably get nits in the process but I mean hey better than COVID-19 and um, basically uh, that's got to go you know that is going to have to go so basically all this thing is uh, you're going to have to change a lot of what we do so anyway, enough about physical psychology um I, I i mean as i said i told you i was totally obsessed by it we're going to move on a little bit we're still talking about our classroom and what it will look like but that's how the seating is going to work and even the movement around it and how that all works what we're going to also have to do is think about coats bags lunch boxes and those kind of things as well um, when we're talking about our classrooms. And given that we've been advised to keep our classrooms ventilated, and the only way to do that is to open windows, which is kind of grand until about November, when they'll, they'll to, to put it bluntly, they'll be perishing. So their coats will probably be on them, as well as hats and scarves and thermal underwear and a few extra layers on top of that. But I mean, before that, I imagine coats are going to have to go on the backs of chairs till then, and school bags may not be needed at all. I mean, maybe 
maybe there'll be a point of bringing stuff in from home and sending stuff home from school may not be wise. So maybe maybe we won't need school bags. Um, perhaps that's an idea. Or maybe school bags would just go under their chairs. I don't know. Again, I'm not sure about any of this because we don't know how long COVID-19 stays on particular surfaces. And maybe children will only bring a lunch... Uh, maybe, maybe it might be wise for children just to bring in a lunchbox to school. And that can maybe sit on their desk. I, I'm not sure. But it's something to consider. Uh, moving on, like to sharing resources, that's going to be a big problem too. The guidelines are probably unrealistic, uh, unsurprisingly. Uh, for example, how's anyone going to be able to manage a whole heap of four-year-olds for, from not sharing toys? And then never mind toys, sharing anything, whether pencils, colours, Play-Doh, whatever. Realistically, it's unlikely to happen in younger classes, even if you create these little give everybody their own Play-Doh or give everybody their own Mauler or give everybody their own sets of crayons. But we still have to be seen to try and do it. Someone said to me that a lot of this is going to be optics and they're probably right. Um, however, even if it is only optics, we still have to do it. I mean, I, I, I get that. So are we all going to have to give the children a basket of their with all their work and they can only use stuff or only touch the stuff in their own basket? And will this even be enough? I mean, realistically, how are they going to be cleaned every day, even with the extra cleaning staff? Um, is there a possible solution of a fogger, of these fogger machines where they can spray down toys and shared resources? Um, if, just for those of you who've never heard of a fogger machine, I'd never heard of one until uh, uh, last week. It's a machine that sprays tiny, tiny droplets that kill viruses and bacteria in a room very quickly. Now, I'm not, uh, I'm not sure of the ins and outs of them, um, but it's, again, it's, you know, these are the kind of things that uh, we have to consider as teachers and maybe school leaders as well. Um, so that's just that area. I want to move on again. We're at 17 minutes of this. Imagine talking for 17 minutes about setting up your classroom. And we're still, you know, still have a little bit more to do because I want to talk to you a little bit about hand washing in your school. And this, um, this is an area, uh, again, where the government said, make sure hand washing happens. And they've given a few ideas of when. Be because, you know, the Department of Education you know, say this is the most important thing to organise. And they're probably, and I can imagine they're right, washing hands is the most important way that we can combat this virus from spreading. Now, washing hands, as many of you know, in a normal household, is all well and good, as most people have enough bathrooms and sinks for the number of people that live in their house. In a classroom, it's a very different story. And you might be lucky uh, to have um, two cubicles, two toilets and cubicles, and, a, and another sink in your classroom for hand washing. But you probably aren't um, if you're in the, mo in the majority of schools. You might be in a school where, there, where there's one shared bathroom in the whole school or two shared bathrooms in the whole school. So all of this is going to actually have to be taken into account uh, to be dealing with especially if children have to leave the classroom to use a bathroom. You know, this the, 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 that's not just a off you go now and uh, come back when you're done. A bit of management is needed. I mean, you know, most children can go to it, can go to a bathroom and come back without um, without any incident. But everybody knows there are some children that if you send them out to the bathroom to wash their hands, they could be there for uh, they could be there for over an hour uh, because they've seen something that interested them more than coming back into the classroom. And um, in fact, you know, I, so basically what I'd say is, in fact, I, I suspect that the school day is now going to be broken up into segments depending on hand washing uh, breaks, basically. Um, and the amount of time this is going to take will depend on loads of things. So we're going to look, I'm just going to look at a couple of examples. I can't, obviously, I don't know what all schools look like. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll look at a couple of examples. Um, so the first one is, let's take the situation where you're, you're in a, a, a modern building. 
you know, one of those, you know, sexily named repeat generic designs, you know, those ones, uh, you probably, if you're in one, you, you might not even know it's called repeat generic design, basically any school built in the last 10 years. And um, you're likely to have two toilets in your classroom and probably a sink at the back of the room. So you may have uh, two sinks um, in those cubicles or you may have uh, one sink shared between the two. But you basically have either two or three sinks uh, in your in your room. And uh, the one at the back of your room might be accessible, depending on how many children you have to squeeze into your pods. Um, anyway, I'm not sure how useful this tip might be, um, but I'm going to give it anyway. Um, so maybe there could be some sort of automated rota system um, or a scheme so that every pod or every group or whatever it's known as will have to wash their hands every X or a time, you know, every hour, let's say. I don't think, will it be every hour? It probably is every hour on average. Whatever works for you. And for me, the only real way to do that is to probably set timers in your room. So if you have six pods, for example, each pod will have to wash their hands um, every hour. So that means every 10 minutes, your timer is going to go off. So you're probably going to be beeping in your classroom to tell the next pod to go and wash their hands and kind of manage that. Um, and it seems to be a fairly disruptive. I mean, that, I mean to me, that's even saying it sounds fairly disruptive. But I think after a while, um, you probably won't hear the beeps. I mean, if you work in a special class for children with autism, um, there's beepers going off every 10 seconds, you know, for different things. Um, and people tend to not notice them anymore. And children could be trained to do them quietly and quickly, and particularly if you've got two or three sinks at your disposal and there's only four to six children in a pod, that can be done quite quick every 10 minutes uh, a new group would go. So you've got a bit of rotation, a bit of movement. You'll have to manage that movement. Um, you know, the other thing is, is if you don't like, um, you know, a... Um, kind of using a stopwatch or something like that. It's easy enough to have a visual timer um, in your classroom on your interactive whiteboard or on your on your screen. Um, but you might buy a stopwatch uh, with a timer function that repeat, repeatedly beeps. So you're not setting a timer every 10 minutes. That it just, every 10 minutes it beeps. Um, so, you know. Um, now, to be honest, I think the beeps are going to get tiresome and disruptive. So maybe... There could be another thing, as I said, on your interactive whiteboard, your screen could turn a different colour throughout the day every 10 minutes. So the green group would go or the green pod would go, then the blue pod would go. And every 10 minutes that would change. Look, I, I'm not as sure how that could be done, but uh, I'm sure some sort of programme um, which, you know, would do that every 10 minutes or every 20 minutes and maybe display the name of the pod to go and wash your hands uh, and appear that in the, appear on the screen might be useful. You know, um you know, you could start it on the day you have your interactive whiteboard on all day and um, and basically you set at the beginning of the day, you set your um, your variables. So you have your six pods and you might have your uh, every 10 minutes, a, a different pod will go um, and that will show up on the board kind of quietly. So when they see their color on the screen, uh, they might just go to wash their hands. You know, maybe maybe uh, something I can make, maybe. Maybe this could be my the thing to make my millions, actually. Hmm. Anyway, enough dreaming. Uh, what about older schools um, where there's actually shared bathrooms on the corridors? Like probably most schools. Um, now, with older classes, something similar to the above might work. You just send the children out and back. Uh, but there is an element of policing the, uh, the bathrooms as children might find themselves hanging out a bit too long with the old hand washing. Um, with younger children, it might be the case of marching them up and down the corridor a load of times a day. So again, a rota might be needed for this. 
Um, other questions around hand washing uh, include managing soap and then the drying of one's hands. So uh, obviously we can't share towels these days, so it's paper towels for all I imagine. And we all have to manage that because it doesn't take long for a class of 30 children to go through a packet of paper towels, especially that one child who feels the need to take enough uh, of the paper towels to absorb the entire contents of a swimming pool, for example, and uh, not washing their hands, you know, rather than their hands. Anyway, gosh, look, I never thought I'd be thinking so deeply about something as small as hand washing, but it goes to show the huge amount of management it involves and we haven't even got to actually teaching anything yet. And speaking of which, this is where we're going to turn to in our next segment in this series. Getting back to school seemed such a simple endeavour, probably before listening to me, <laughs> I don't know. We didn't even get to talk about blended learning at all in this, and I promise we will get to it very soon. However, before we do any of that, it's very important that we plan for being in the classroom initially before, and actually even thinking about how we teach certain subjects before we start preparing the children for blended learning opportunities. Now, a few things I didn't do in this particular thing, because uh, obviously there'll be things uh, you'll, you'll uh, the first thing you'll say is, why didn't you talk about this is important, this is important, like for example, staggering opening and closing times and things like that. The reason I didn't cover things like that is because that's probably something for principals, um, school leaders and boards of management to deal with. And I wanted this to really to be focused on a teacher, uh, what teachers have to deal with. Um, because, you know, look, um, and you know, I suppose every school is going to be completely different when it comes to that kind of thing as well. It might be very difficult, like the size of parkings, uh, you know, size of car parking spaces, parking availability at all in the vicinity, how many buses serve the school, how big is the school, how many entrances there are to the school, and so on. So I mean, even even if I tried to cover those bigger things, so not a classroom, so the, the entire school, um, I mean, I'll t I can probably share with you at some point what my school will be doing, but my school uh, is probably only alike maybe 100 schools in the country, not 3,200. So as you can see, before we even think about learning, logistics, um, even in a teacher's classroom, um, they're, they're the things that logistics are really going to have to take place. So I think um, what I'll do there is I'll, we're coming up to 25, 26 minutes now. So what I'll do is I'll end this episode um, now um, and let you know that next time we're going to be talking um, about um, about, I suppose, the, the curriculum. How is that going to change? Now, we have uh, the curriculum guidelines from the Department of Education to help us, but um, from speaking to others, there are a few other things we need to consider. So I'm going to go through that next time. And possibly after that, we'll move on to um, preparing your child, uh, preparing your class for blended learning future. Um, that's it. Uh, thanks for listening. If you do like this podcast or you found it by accident, uh, you can search for it by uh, on um, your various podcasting tools, um, whether that's iTunes or um, Spotify or any of the any of the rest of them. Uh, just search for On Shaw's podcast or if I were the Minister for Education or even on Shaw.net uh, where you'll find the podcast. If you wouldn't mind uh, reviewing the podcast, uh, I'd really, really appreciate that because it makes uh, it easier uh, for other people to find it. Um, and uh, it goes that leaves me really with nothing left to do but to say goodbye and we'll see you again in a few days time uh, with the next part of this series on the sanitizer thanks for listening and goodbye